Well, church, we have started the book of Mark. Everybody say, yeah. All right. Awesome. So the book of Mark is a powerful, powerful book. Let's see if I can bring it up. Okay, there we go. So it's a powerful, powerful book. We've been talking through last week that it is a shocking book. It's intended to kind of shock us out of complacency. It's to shock us into making a decision about who is this man, Jesus Christ. We know that the book of Mark came into a culture, a Roman culture that was really skeptical about about this Jesus guy, and they were hearing rumors. And so Mark was written as a gospel to say, here are the facts of what Jesus did. Now you have to make up your mind about who he is. Okay, that is the book of Mark. And before we jump into the passage there in Mark 1, 9 through 11, um, I just want to tell you a quick story. It makes me think about this next passage. When I was uh, in grade school, I uh, went camping with my family. Anybody camp, family camp fans? Like we love camping. And we, uh, as a grade school kid, my family decided it'd be a good idea to go to Nebraska and camp around this little lake. We had some family in the area. And there's this thing about Nebraska. Anybody know about Nebraska at certain seasons of the year? There's these things called tornadoes. And they're terrifying. Okay, so we're camping at this little lake named Oliver. And I'll never forget, um, it started to pour rain. And we're sitting there in this torrential rain. And we're in the back of the camper. And I remember my dad's like out there grilling in a torrential rain. He's got like the steak. He's one of those very committed men who's like, this steak is going to happen. I don't care what else does, right? I know you guys are out there. And as my dad was grilling, he brings it inside, and we're all sitting as kids. I remember sitting around this table, and I remember my aunt bursting into our camper and saying, we got to go right now. As a grade school kid, your eyes light up like, what is going on? And we run out of the camper. I didn't even have time to put my shoes on. We jump into um, our 87 Ford Econoline van, okay? And I remember my mom shouting at my dad, Steve, our, our dog Penny, and we almost forgot Penny, right? And so they, they, my dad runs through the rain, runs back up, throws the dog in the van, and we're on the road. And as we're driving, I see, as we look across the road, we just see the road starting to get washed out. And it was scary. Can you imagine the experience? Have you ever been in an experience like this? And as we're driving down the road, we get to one end of the road, and the, there's, there's officers, and they're like, the road's washed out here. You can't come this way. you got to go this way. We're in the middle of Nebraskan country. Where do you find shelter? And we start hearing the alarm, you know what I mean? That, that terrifying tornado-type alarm. And it starts going off. And as we're driving, I look to my right, and I see it. I see it. And in that moment, I just remember in my grade school mind, I just, I'm just shocked. I'm just put in my place as I look, and it's an F4 tornado is tearing through this barn out in the country that I can see. And it just annihilates it, sends shivers down my spine. I'm just shocked. And, and luckily, like we were able to, to head in a different direction. And that night, we went and stayed at a family friend's house in their basement, terrified the whole night. And, but when I remember when I got to the safe place, when I got to the safe place, I began to just think about all that I had seen. 
the destructive force that I had witnessed, the immensity of what I had just seen. And it took me, I'm still thinking about what I had seen. You ever seen something like that that just makes you feel so small, makes you feel so tiny? And I remember I just lost it. We were in the safety of the basement and I just, I began to cry and I, I grabbed both of my siblings, my brother, my sister, and I just cried and said, I love you guys so much because there's something about an experience that like, like that, that just puts life in perspective, isn't it? Well, see, brothers and sisters, when we go into this passage, this is the baptism of Jesus and this Story. I don't think sometimes when we jump into the book of Mark, we tend to just read over these next few verses like they're not earth shattering. But what we see in this passage that we're about to read, we're about to see God reveal his very nature, the creator God, who he is, what he's like. He's about to give us an in-depth look like nobody else in history has seen. And we see it at the baptism of Jesus. We see it at the baptism of Jesus. I want us to uh, then go ahead and look at that. Um, Let's see. Let me grab my Bible here real quick. All right. So let's go ahead and read that passage. Mark, we're going to read Mark 1, 9 through 11. 1, 9 through 11. And there we go too much here. So Mark 1, 9 through 11. It's a short passage, but the, the amount of truth and importance as God reveals who he is to us. I want you to read this with me in your Bibles. Follow along, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan and by John, in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, being torn open or divided into that word literally is torn open and the spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray Holy Spirit now as you're here with us, would you give us an understanding for the immensity of this passage. What you're showing us about who Jesus is is so important to our everyday life. Oh, I pray that today we wouldn't glance over it, but that we would dive deep into it. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark, I want to do just a quick reminder as we look at this passage to remember that the Mark is the who and the how of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And then later on in the book of Mark is how did Jesus accomplish everything that he set out to do, which was save mankind. The gospel, when we share the gospel, here's another easy way to remember it. We've shared this before. The gospel is uh, God created us to be with him. So everybody say that with me. God created us to be with him. Okay, Our sins separate us from God. That's part of being a Christian, right? When we recognize that we were sinners, we were separated from God. And this is what makes Christianity distinct. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Everybody say that with me. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. 
And then P, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Would you say that with me? Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And then E, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And then the last part, this is like one of the cooler parts, right? Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. Okay, that is the gospel. That is the gospel, the good news that Christians carry. And as we look at the gospel of Mark, it starts with what the word we use is called Trinity. Everybody say Trinity with me. Okay, so it's really important as we look at this passage where Jesus is baptized, we see three persons of the Trinity. Do you guys see them? Right? So Jesus is there. He's the Son, right? And then the Spirit is there, and it appears as a what? A dove flying over Jesus. And then we have God the Father with a booming voice from heaven saying, this is my son, right? So we have Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity in the same spot in their distinct roles. But get this, one God. We have one God in three persons. And this is the clearest presentation in history up until this point of who God is trying to show us that he is. And so we don't see another passage like this. It is a unique passage in scripture where Jesus and all three persons of the Trinity are in the same place at the same time. And it's for a specific and important reason. We have two things. We have two things generally in our relationship with God. He, he communicates to us in two different ways. We call them general revelation and specific revelation. And I think about a, a good way to explain it to you, general revelation. When God reveals to him, to, uh, himself to us generally, he, um, think about it like this. When, I'm, when I had my, some of my first, uh, when I first interacted with Becky, that's Becky, by the way, in that picture. It's my wife, Becky. She's standing looking over the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, whichever you prefer to call it. It's the same one. So I take, uh, I first met Dad, Becky when we were in college. And can you imagine if just from afar, I saw Becky and I was like, she's gorgeous. I'm going to marry her. Do I know her very well? How many of you be like, slow your roll, Shane. Okay. You need to learn who she is first, right? You need to learn who she is first. Well, general revelation is like looking at a picture of a person or seeing them from far away. You can see what they're wearing. You can see they're beautiful, but you don't know who they are. That's general revelation. Many of us, we love God's general revelation because I've heard this. Oh man, I don't read the Bible or I don't go to church, but I love to go to the mountains. That's my church. That's where I get, well, that's general revelation. That's great. You're looking at who God is by what he's made and what he looks like. And it's amazing. Yes, all of creation is amazing. Amen? Yeah. But in history, God gives a specific revelation. And that specific revelation came to us through Jesus. So Jesus is the perfect representation of God to us in this earth. He is God with us. Emmanuel. So when we look at Jesus, we can know specifically who God is. It's not just, that's what God looks like, but this is who God is. That's specific revelation. And so in that, in that dating example, it would be like me taking Becky out and saying, 
Tell me about yourself. What do you love? What do you do? Where are you from? I get to know her. Well, this, I like to think about this passage in particular is, is like a love letter uh, from God to us saying, here's who I am. Answering that specific, specific questions, specific um, characters of who he is. So we know Trinity itself, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Did you guys know that? The word Trinity, it's just the best word we could come up with to describe what is in Scripture. Okay, so that's why Trinity is not in your Bible. You won't find it. But we see it here that, that God is one God in three persons. And this is really important. Throughout history, the church has really fought over this and tried to arrive at a place that we think that the scriptures are clearly teaching exactly what God is trying to tell us about who he is. And it's really important that we start to think about what do we believe about God and why? You ever wonder, what is the source for what you believe about God? What is the best and most accurate source for what you believe about God? You guys got your Bibles? Right, that's his mouthpiece. That's how he tells us who he is. That's how he tells us who he is, right? But what if you just go and talk to a bunch of random people about who is God? Are you going to get a very accurate picture for who is God? Here's the tough one. If you go and talk to a bunch of random Christians, are you going to hear the truth about who God is from Scripture? I've done that. I should do some interviews. I'll show you sometime. I'll do video interviews, and I'll walk around and interview some people in our town that call themselves Christians and ask them who is God. And I bet you you'll be astounded how little they describe things from Scripture, but how much they've just heard it somewhere from somebody. We have to be people that know what we believe and why we believe it. And we have to know that the source of what we know about God is from God himself. Amen? Because in a, in a relativist culture, anybody can say anything about God. That doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true. That's where we, uh, in school, in seminary, they make you write down and do a credo statement a statement of creed where you're going through and you're saying, okay, here's what the Bible says about God. So this is what I, I believe about God. And so you have to cite your sources. Anybody hate doing that in college or in high school where you have to cite your sources? Sometimes I think as Christians, we need to be really careful to cite our sources about God, not just our experiences, not just people in our life and what they've said, but we've got to look at the Bible and say, okay, how does it measure up? Because the word canon, when you talk about scripture, the Bible, it's a canon. We call it the canon of scripture, meaning that all the books um, are the measure of truth. Okay, canon literally means measurer. When we look at the Bible, the Bible is a measure of who, what truth is. And so we want to be people who know how and what we believe. This is where things in history popped up, like the Nicene Creed, okay? Um, many of you maybe recited this in some of your, your churches. It's, it's a solid, solid statement based out of Scripture, but if you just recite it and not think about what it means, it's going to be meaningless. But I want us to read through this really quick together, because this is an amazing description of the Trinity from this passage. So uh, just read along with me. I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. 
and in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And, here's the third person, ready? In the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And one holy Catholic church. Now pause there for a second. That word Catholic has a lot of meaning to a lot of different people, doesn't it? But the literal word Catholic, all that means is the universal church, meaning every believer everywhere who follows Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, right? And so the holy Catholic church just means every believer everywhere, okay? It doesn't mean just the Roman Catholic church. Does that make sense? The reason they use that word is because that was its original intended meaning, right? But the meaning of the word itself is universal church. So, and one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Okay, so do you guys know why creeds, why was the Nicene Creed written? Anybody? So usually the Nicene Creed was written because there were heresies that popped up throughout history. And they had to be addressed because people started hearsaying and just making up things about God. And so we had to address those things as false about God. There's all kinds of false teachings. When we start to look at the Trinity, particularly in this passage, we need to understand there's a lot of different things that can lead us into a wrong belief about who God is. And one of those is the egg example. Anybody ever seen an egg? I was going to have a hard-boiled egg with me today, but I wasn't as prepared as I wanted to be. A hard-boiled egg. And there's a lot of people who hold up an egg and say, okay, well, the God is like an egg. He's like the yolk, the egg whites, and the shell, but it's all one egg. That's garbage, okay? I want you to just take that. That's garbage, okay? It's, it, and it's not garbage. It's helpful initially, but it leads to a heresy called modalism, Call modalism. Another example that maybe sometimes people use for the triune God is uh, water. Sometimes it's frozen, sometimes it's uh, wet, and then when it gets uh, hot, it becomes steam, right? So maybe God is like water. No, that also leads to modalism. Let me tell you what modalism is. Modalism believes that there's one God who just puts on different face masks at different times, okay? That can't be true because what did we just read? You had all three persons of God in the same place at the same time, and they were in different roles. Does that make sense? Okay, if your head is hurting, then you're doing good because that's the Trinity. It, it is an incredible truth. And by the way, when we call God holy, we're saying he's unlike anything we know. 
anything we can experience. He's saying he's separate than his creation. He's other than. And so when we say God is holy, 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 we're saying he's separate or other than. There's nothing in this earth that can describe God fully. That's why he gives us his word to show us. Uh, so modalism is, is a heresy that was believed. Arianism is another heresy that popped up in history um, and that this passage really refutes. But uh, Jesus was not God at all. So a lot of people will say, well, Jesus wasn't God. But there's a lot of problems. We're going to go in, into that uh, here in a minute. So tritheism. Uh, so some people look at Christianity a lot of times, so like Muslims will look at Christianity and they'll say, well, you're polytheistic, meaning you believe in three different gods. Do we believe in three different gods? Well, I'll show you why here in a minute. Okay. So that's also a heresy. There's another heresy called adoptionism. And that's that Jesus at this passage in this moment was adopted. He was a regular man who was adopted as son of God. Um, in this passage right here where God says, uh, you're my beloved son, I take delight in you. And there's some other problems with this belief too. Uh, God, had, he was before the beginning of creation, right? And so let's look at the triune God. What is this passage? What is God trying to show us about who he is? And I promise, don't, don't blaze out at me, okay? Because I'm going to show you why this is crucial to our walk with God. It has everything to do with how we practice life with God. If we understand that God is triune, we need, it, it, it affects how we treat God in every aspect of our relationship with him. So triune God, here we go. We're going to go really quick. And I have notes, so if you feel like, Shane, you left me in the dust here, okay? Or if you're one of those studiers who wants to go and make sure that everything I say is true, and you should do that, there's a whole sheet of notes, and every passage that I'm listing up here that you're about to see, I want you to go and test me, okay? I want you to go and look these passages up and make sure that I'm not just making this up, okay? Can you do that? Cool, okay. So the triune God. God is so triune God. God eternally exists in three persons, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. There is one God. Okay, so here's where we get into the thick of it. <clears throat> the Old Testament. Let's talk about one God. I One time at camp, I preached this truth with a room full of teenagers, and I've never had a more upset room of teenagers because this truth is so offensive to our world today. I want, and so don't take this for granted, believers. You might believe this is like old hat, but the younger generations don't get this. Are you ready? So one God, the Old Testament resoundingly declares there is no other God but one. There's no other God but one. I have all of the passages resounding from Genesis all the way to Revelations. The Bible teaches that there is one God. There are no other gods. Number two, the New Testament agrees with this. And you see all those passages there in the interest of time. We'll keep rolling, okay? Number three, no one is like God. There are many who make claims to be like God, but no one is, is like God, okay? And then claims to be like God are typically lies, right? Typically lies. And I want you to check those passages. We're going to keep rolling, though, here. Father and the Son, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are each equally God, okay? This is really important. The Father is fully God, okay? That kind of goes without being said, right? 
God the Father is fully God. But the Son, so here is a big source of contention in our culture today, isn't it? And this is what this this is the core reason of this passage that we just read about the baptism of Jesus to show that he is God with us. He's the Son of God. So he is the Son and he is fully God. He was declared God by other people throughout scriptures. And then he even claimed to be God. Don't believe the lie out there that some people say he didn't claim to be God. He claimed to be God. He's not just a good teacher. But I'll tell you, this is a lie proclaimed in our culture that he was just a good teacher. He never claimed to be God. It's in the Bible. It's eyewitness accounts of Jesus claiming to be God. He was either a lunatic or he was the son of God. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is fully God. He has the attributes of God. He's eternal. He's powerful. Uh, He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And he's declared God in these passages, Acts and John and 2 Corinthians. So the Holy Spirit is fully God. So you have Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. Are you guys still with me? Okay, let's keep rolling. This is intense stuff, but it's crucial truths. Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. We see that and lived out in this passage. Father and the Son are identified separately in the letters. Okay, so in all of the letters in the New Testament, they're, they're identified not as the same, but separately. They're different persons. Father and Son are identified as two persons in John, in passages like Galatians. Uh, and then Jesus and the Spirit are not the same person. So we get that out of Luke and out of John. Um, let's keep going here. The Father and the, so Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. We're still talking about how they're each distinct persons. The Father and the Spirit are not the same person. The Father and the Spirit are not the same person. There's a heresy about the Holy Spirit being an impersonal force. Any of you watch Star Wars? Okay. The Holy Spirit is not the force. Okay. He's not the force. Quit trying to call on him like the force. Okay. You Jedi. Um, Okay, he's not the force. He's, he's a, a specific person. So the Father and the Spirit are not the same person. And Jesus declared that he and the Father are distinct persons, but one. And so, is Jesus the Father? Oh, I'm confusing you now. You're not supposed to quiz us, Shane, right? No, they're two different distinct persons. Is the Holy Spirit and Jesus the same? No, they're two distinct persons, right? And so here's what the Bible teaches us. But does that mean we have multiple gods? No. Anybody's mind hurting now? Okay, good. This is where God wants us. Okay. Okay. So the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved. Can you grieve an impersonal force? Gravity, you're kind of dumb. Is gravity insulted? No. Because the Holy, the Holy Spirit is different than an impersonal force. He is a person. He can be resisted. He can be insulted according to Scripture. He's referred to as he, not it, in John uh, 14, 17. So, why is this important? Okay, why is this important? Number one, what we do with the Trinity and what we believe about the Trinity, it impacts our salvation and how we're saved. Did you know that? Salvation hinges on who Christ is. And here's what I mean about that. Some of the biggest arguments in history uh, about Jesus and his personhood, we call it Christology. Who is Jesus? You ever asked what made Jesus qualified 
to die for the sins of all humanity? What made him qualified? You ever asked about qualifications? Some guy died. Well, a lot of people die in history. What made Jesus different? How was he qualified to pay the price for all humanity? He knew no sin. Yeah, he knew no sin. Part of that as well is that he was, here's where we call the two natures of Christ. Christ is fully God. He's fully God because who else could take on and drink the full cup of wrath of God, but God himself. Okay. And so we know that, that he was able to drink the full cup of wrath, but also the two natures of Christ. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. Why is it important that he was fully man? Well, how many of you feel like a perfect divine being could feel how you feel and understand the way that you are? Well, that's why it's really important that Jesus Christ was fully man. Because he, it says in the Hebrews, right, that he understands our woes. He's felt our feelings. He knows the challenges that stand before us. And therefore, he's a perfect representative of humanity before God. So why is it important that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Because he couldn't have taken on the sin of the world for us. He would have been just another death. But we know that Jesus rose again. Amen? That's because of the fullness of Christ. Our salvation hinges on who Jesus is. Mark understands this in this passage and is quick to show us exactly who Jesus is. He is a member of the triune God. He's one of the three persons, one God. Only God can withstand the cup of his wrath and only a man can truly represent us before a holy God. So what does that mean for us today? Brothers and sisters, what does that mean for us today? You guys ever thought about how the Trinitarian nature affects our communication with God? When we pray, you ever notice how each person of the Trinity has a role in our prayer life with God? I call it a, a great way to remember it is the by through to principle. Everybody say that with me, by through to. When you pray, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit oftentimes has to coach us on how to pray, right? So, by the Holy Spirit, we pray. He teaches us how and what is that prayer and what is the content of our prayer, right? By the Holy Spirit, could we approach a holy God in our own merit? We couldn't. There was a, a veil between us and him. There was a boundary between us and him. And so that was torn by Christ. And so the barrier between us and God was removed through Jesus, so by the Holy Spirit, we pray through Jesus. He's like the bridge between us and God. He's a mediator between us and God. It says that he's standing at the right hand right now. What is he doing? He's advocating for us. That's Jesus is advocating before the Father for us. So we pray by the Holy Spirit through Jesus to who? God the Father. And you see that in the, the model prayer, don't we? The model prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Who is that prayer addressed to? The Father, right? So we, we, we pray by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to the Father. Isn't that cool? So it affects our prayer. It affects baptism. When we baptize, what do we say? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the, Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is it important that that's distinct? Because remember, if you remember last week, John came with a baptism of repentance, didn't he? A repentance and forgiveness. But, uh, but Jesus comes, and he comes with the power of baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
right? He says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That, dis- that makes distinct baptism in Jesus. Because you guys know baptism was a common practice of the day, right? There were all kinds of ritual washings in the, in the area, but what made baptism in Christ distinct is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then our daily practice, our daily practice, each of the persons of the Trinity all have their varying roles. It's a cool study to ask, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What is the role of Jesus? And what is the role of God the Father? And look through scripture with that question in mind. It affects our daily practice. And guys, here's where Christianity tends to get themselves, when we the church get ourselves in a rough spot, is when we overemphasize one of the three persons over the other, okay? Here's where we get a thousand different flavors of Christianity. Where we're like, well, we're, we're a church of the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, well, I got told this one time. You overemphasize Jesus, Shane. <laughs> and, and then you can have people that are so about the holiness of God that they never want to talk to him. This is why it's important that we have the Trinity because all three persons of the Trinity are one God and they all are equally fully God. This is really affects how we do Christianity today. So what does that mean for us? Oh, I was going to give you some passages. So by through to you, by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that's the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer. Through Jesus, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then lastly, God the Father out of Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And then the model prayer shows us that we pray to God the Father. So what? Brothers and sisters, I want to I just challenge you. <sighs> Would you make sure that the beliefs that you have regarding God are from him? And how do you do that? Sometimes that means that you have to move away from general revelation and move into specific revelation. You got to look at scripture and you got to say, is this what the Bible is teaching? And do I believe what the Bible is intending to say? We have to do our due diligence. We have to study. We have to back up our belief. We have to cite our sources. Why is it important that we get this right? Why is it important that we get this right, church? <laughs> there is a lost and dying world out there that doesn't know the true God. And we carry the message about who he is in Jesus Christ. If we don't get this right, we're missing it. We're missing it. This is of utmost importance that we get who God is right and how we live and how we speak, and how we talk. Are we going to mess up? Yeah. Thank goodness for God's grace. Amen. I, I, I hope you don't walk away from here feeling like, oh no, now I'm under condemnation. Romans 8, there is no condemnation from those who are in Christ Jesus, but let's try. Let's try. Let's utilize that grace that God gives us and try our best to do better because he's worth every effort. Let's do our due diligence to study and back up what we believe. Have you ever thought about writing a credo about what you believe? And then teach the full picture of Jesus and leave out your opinions. Leave out your opinions about who Jesus is and cling straight to God's word. So if you're a life group leader, I want to challenge you. 
um, to ask this question to your group this week. How does the triune nature of God affect you today? How does the triune nature of God affect you today and affect how you live and affect how you pray? How does the triune nature of God affect your relationship with him? Brothers and sisters, if you're here and you've professed faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, press deep into who he is. He's got so much. When you talk about Trinity, it's not easy to describe in in a few words, is it? That's because our God is so much bigger and beyond our understanding, but we should try to communicate him in a way that he communicated to us. And he does that in Mark, in the baptism of Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. But you need to know that there is a perfect and holy God, the Father, that the only way you have relationship with him was through Jesus. And right now I'm praying. I'm praying for this community. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Because if we think we don't have any sin, we don't think we need God, do we? The Holy Spirit has to come and show us the truth. (laughs) We're not right with God on our own. We need. So Holy Spirit, we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and convict the world of sin so that we could come into the precious forgiveness with Jesus Christ. Can we do that, church? Can we live like our God is an amazing Trinitarian God? When I go back to thinking about that, to the encounter with a tornado, I spent years thinking about what I had witnessed. To this day, I still look back and I just, I'm in shock about how big that terrifying tornado was. If I spend so much time on an experience like that, why would I not spend equally amount of time pondering and praising something that's so far beyond my understanding like that of our Trinitarian God? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Uh, God, I pray against the spirit of uh, condemnation, but Lord, I pray for a spirit of encouragement. Lord, I know sometimes I'm intense. And God, I just pray that that would not get in the way, Holy Spirit, of of you encouraging the believers to walk in you. Lord, I pray that there would be a great deal of encouragement there as they begin to peel back um, some of their misconceptions and see who truly you are. Lord, I pray that all of us, God, would you show us who you are in a way that is accurate and true and not in just a way that we have fooled ourselves. Lord, we pray that now over your church in Jesus' name. Amen.